This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions as they've been studying God's word or seeking counsel as it relates to their personal ministry or maybe even some family issue that they are looking for answers for. If we can be of help by God's grace, we will. Again, the number locally is 843-525-1859, or you can use our toll-free number. It's 877-WAGP, the call letters, WAGP 980. We broadcast through the internet around the world 24-7 at WAGP.net. And if you would like to email us here directly into the studio, you can. And the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we'll be happy to receive it that way as well. Rick, it's great to be here in the studio this morning, so let's go ahead and we will get started. Indeed, Pastor. We've got a number of questions uh, from Augusta, Georgia. We had an email. Uh, In light of what Scripture says in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How does this apply to the imprecatory psalms? And is it ever okay for a Christian to pray an imprecatory prayer like Psalm 58? Indeed it is, uh, and it's a great question that's come here from Augusta. Uh, All Scripture is given by inspiration, by the breath of God Almighty. And so there's profit in every Scripture, even the imprecatory psalms. You know, surprisingly, C.S. Lewis had some real difficulty with the imprecatory psalms, and he thought that maybe they weren't inspired. Of course, he was wrong. He knows better now. Lewis was a good guy, but in many ways, he he wasn't in a really solid church that grounded him biblically and taught him soundly the scriptures. But what he did know, certainly God used him, even in some of the immature aspects of his life. Nonetheless, uh, Psalm 58 is uh, one of many imprecatory psalms, uh, David, of course, writes it, and he begins by saying, Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods, O Elohims? And, of course, uh, the term Elohims, which is plural, uh, is used most often of God. In the beginning, God, plural, created, singular Hebrew verb, the heavens and the earth. And so the triunity of God is affirmed in the very first verse of the Bible. But sometimes the word Elohims, and like many words in whatever language you're dealing with, they find their meaning in their context. It can be used of idolatrous gods or sometimes of rulers. In fact, Jesus uses it that way in John's gospel. 
Uh, but nonetheless, here he's speaking of rulers and he is speaking of these men who are judges. In fact, sometimes it's rendered judges in some English translations in that psalm. It's less than literal, but it's interpretive, but it's a correct interpretation. And of course, even if you don't know Hebrew, it becomes apparent from what follows. Do you judge uprightly, O sons of man? It's a rhetorical question. And he answers it. No, in heart, you work on righteousness on earth. You weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or a skillful caster of spells. And so instead of practicing justice, his point is, is they're practicing injustice. And so then David says, oh, God, it's in the vocative in English, which really communicates the depth of feeling. Unfortunately, some of the new translations don't include the vocative anymore. You know, we see the word O, the letter O, O God. Uh, that's depth of heart, and it's one way in English that we can express depth of heart, and the New American Standard has retained the vocative, which is great. O God, shatter their teeth and their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. And it's, of course, all caps and Lord using the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as a headless shaft, you know, make their arrows ineffective. In other words, there's no point on the end of them. And so he says, sweep them away. And then he speaks to the fact that the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. So David is praying a good thing here. That's not a bad thing. You know, if you lived during World War II when Hitler was annihilating millions of Jewish people, he was a wicked man. You might have prayed the thoughts of uh, the psalmist, King David here, like an imprecatory psalm. God, destroy him. You say, isn't that rather unkind? No, it's, it's a righteous anger. The Bible says, be angry, but sin not. And so it's okay to have a righteous anger where there is injustice. Uh, you know, certainly God can intervene and save even a wicked judge. He could have saved Hitler, but I think Hitler's time was long, long past. His heart had become so hard and stony that he promoted wickedness. Like Romans 1, God had given him over to a reprobate, depraved, and upside-down mind. So um, we should pray about unjust rulers and ask God to deal with them righteously. That's part of our responsibility. And we have not because we ask not. We can complain about unjust rulers or we can pray for, for God to deal with them accordingly. And it takes discernment. It takes maturity to know how to pray. But um, we find an example of a man who's after God's own heart who does that very thing with a righteous anger, looking to God. Now, he's obviously the king, and he knows that as the king, he plays a role in dealing with unjust judges, but he's really expressing his submission to the king of kings, that though God has given him authority, his authority is under the authority of God Almighty, and he's looking ultimately to God for the answer. 
So it's a, it's a powerful psalm, very much inspired and very much for today as all scripture is. Great question from Augusta. Let's go to the second one. Uh, what do we have next, Rick? Any, all right. If you we, want to call us again, it's 525-1859, area code 843. Bob from Okatee has a question about creeds. Uh, what is the background on the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed? And why does the Book of Common Prayer have a couple of different versions of the Apostles' Creed? And what is the reference to the Catholic Church? Well, the word Catholic there in the Nicene Creed and in the Apostles' Creed is small letter C. And the word Catholic is from uh, a Latin word that means universal. And so it refers to the universal church. The, the, uh, unfortunately, in the Roman Catholic Church, they've added a word. They call the Roman Catholic Church, which is somewhat of an oxymoron. Uh, but Christians recognize the universal church. And so Community Bible Church is a local assembly of believers. Uh, nonetheless, uh, we are just one assembly of thousands of really millions of local churches that meet across the planet. And so while we recognize that we are a part of the body of Christ, we're not all the body of Christ. We recognize the universal church. Now, some Christians that use that term universal church as an escape for being a member of a local church, which is obviously an unbiblical stance. But at the other extreme, some Christians you know, they say, well, Christ died for the church, meaning their local church. Well, they did, but he died for more than their local church. He died for everyone who's a member of the universal body of Christ. Uh, he's shed his blood for every believer and unbeliever for that, for that matter. So at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, uh, they gave a summary of what they called apostolic doctrine. And some people uh, have argued that, well, this is when they came up with doctrines like the Trinity. Dan Brown wrote a book some years ago. I, I preached actually a sermon on it because there, it was such a bestseller and it was just filled with heresy, though he said it was fictional. Nonetheless, he, he made it like it was non-fictional and, and that's the way the media ran with it. And so I felt the need to address it. Uh, but at the Council of Nicaea, they did not at that point say, well, Jesus was God. At the Council of Nicaea, they did not say at that point, uh, we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. They were just summarizing biblical doctrine that had been in view for hundreds and hundreds of years, apostolic doctrine. So there was actually uh, more than one creed that is named the Apostles' Creed. And they read very, very similarly, but they are different. Um, did the apostles write it? Well, some say that the apostles, uh, after Pentecost, had a creed that they recited. Uh, that's doubtful. There's zero evidence for that. But I think the apostles' creed, and it comes in a few different forms, some cover more issues than others, or the Nicene Creed are good summaries of biblical truth. Now, there are some differences. For instance, in the Apostles' Creed, it says uh, he suffered before Pontius Pilate was buried, uh, died, buried. He descended into hell. And then on the third day, he was raised from the dead. So that phrase, he descended into hell, is in some creeds and not in others. And some won't read it uh, because they think, well, if Jesus on the cross descended into hell, uh, if Jesus on the cross completely paid for our sin, and he did, he shouted to Telestai, 
then there was no need for him to descend into hell. And unfortunately, it later on in the history of the church, some took that phrase, he descended into hell, as well, he went to hell for us, and he, he suffered for our sins in hell. And so some churches uh, choose to read a creed that does not contain those words. But that's a misunderstanding on, on the part of those who uh, interpreted that creed to read that way. Uh, that's not what it referred to, that Jesus descended into hell to pay for sin. I have a whole sermon on it. That whole thought of Jesus's descent into uh, hell is actually a biblical doctrine. It's found in Peter's epistles, and he deals with the fact that he went to hell, not as Clark Pinnock said, to give lost people a second chance to be saved, but actually to preach the condemnation of a certain group of angels who sinned during the time of Noah. Anyway, I have a whole sermon on that. If you're interested, you can uh, go to search the scriptures and uh, listen to a sermon on Genesis 6. But creeds are good summaries of faith. Now, there are some churches who say, well, we're not creedal churches. And by that, they mean our faith is not in a creed. It's in the word of God. Uh, There are some Baptists, for instance, will typically say, well, we're not a creedal people. But there are a number of great Baptist confessions or creeds, which is really what a confession is. But their point in saying that is that our faith is not in some creed. It's found in the Bible because that's the source. And sola scriptura is the final authority, not a creed. And there are certainly been things that have been written in creeds that are in error. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith called the Pope of the Antichrist. And if you read that article in its historical context, they were referring to the Pope of their day. Well, obviously the Pope was not the Antichrist because the Antichrist has not yet been manifested. So our authority is not in a creed. Our authority is in the word of God. And if a creed summarizes a biblical truth, then great. If that helps someone to memorize and go to the scriptures and search them out for themselves and and to say, oh, yes, I see the Bible teaches the deity of Christ, our creed affirms it, and here's the biblical justification for it, then great. But ultimately, the word of God is our authority. Good question. Really good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859, toll-free 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net if you have a question for today's Bible line. Jeff from Rankin has this question. Have you heard of the early 19th century evangelist Smith Wigglesworth? He wrote a couple of books on faith as he was a faith healer who claims in his books to have risen several people from the dead through faith. I discern there is a lot of problematic claims he makes, but I was wondering if you could offer further insight. Well, I first heard of this guy actually when I was in seminary. I was teaching an adult Bible fellowship in the church that I was an elder pastor at. I was a pastor of administration or a pastor of evangelism at a large uh, Baptist church in in Dallas, um, and someone in the Sunday school class was an ad, just a very ardent follower of this man, Smith Wigglesworth, so it forced me to do some research and study on him. Uh, he's a 19th century Pentecostal faith healer, uh, lived into the early part of the 20th century. Uh, he believed that healing was in the atonement, and so he took a verse, unfortunately, out of context. And there is healing in the atonement in the sense that ultimately God is going to heal us uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ uh, at the resurrection. So ultimately all healing 
is indeed uh, in the future in the sense that God will give us a resurrection body. Um, nonetheless, he said, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. So surely our griefs, or you could render it our sicknesses, he himself bore. And so they argue that just as Jesus bore our sin, he bore our sicknesses, and just as by faith you receive uh, freedom from your sin debt by trusting in the work that Jesus did on the cross, they would equally argue in the same way by faith, since Jesus bore our sicknesses, that you receive uh, healing through the atonement. Um, The problem with that is multifaceted in that, one, you don't see the New Testament writers understanding that text of Scripture in that fashion. In fact, um, you find Paul, for instance, uh, telling Timothy to take a little wine for his frequent illnesses. Uh, He was a man who probably, like John the Baptist, didn't want to touch any alcohol, but they would take wine in biblical days and they would mix it with water. And if you study the life of Timothy, you discover that he was a man who traveled rather extensively. And because of that, he found himself in many cities where the water was probably less than ideal. And so what he did is what missionaries did a hundred years ago. They would carry a little wine satchel around their neck and they would squirt it into all the water they would receive. Uh, It just took a squirt to kill the bacteria and to make the water safe to drink. And this, of course, is was the use of wine and why strong drink was considered a blessing. On the one hand, God says, don't use it uh, in its pure form uh, for recreational purposes which is what some people do today. In fact, many Christian people do this today. They like to use wine. Uh, They say, well, it relaxes me or it's this or it's that. But God says, don't use it with the exception of a dying, giving it to a dying, despairing man in Proverbs 31. But it would also consider it a blessing in that they would mix it with water where it would no longer be considered strong drink. And so my point in all of this is that uh, Paul said to Timothy, take a little wine. He says, use medicine. Uh, Was that a bad thing? No. Can God heal without medicine? If he so chooses. And certainly we shouldn't dismiss medicine as evil. Now, King Asa sought the doctors and he didn't seek the Lord and God was grieved over his over his sin. King Hezekiah sought the Lord and then God used the medical means in which to pull about his healing. So there's nothing wrong with doctors, but you should look past the doctor to the great physician. You know, sometimes we say, well, I got my prescription in hand and as long as I take my pills, I'll be fine. And we don't pray about it. That's really doing what King Asa did, looking uh, only to the doctor and not to the God who gave us the medicine or the God who uses the medicine to bring about the healing. But if all faith, uh, if faith just uh, in the atonement brought about healing, Paul should have said to Timothy, just believe God. Or um, he, he would not have despaired over the near death of Epaphroditus. So this guy, Smith Wigglesworth, was really a, a false prophet. And he was somewhat of a controversial guy when he would uh, heal people like... Um, One famous uh, incident is where a man supposedly had a cancer in his stomach and he punched him as hard as he could and knocked him several feet away. 
Uh, he, he said, well, I wasn't punching the man. I was punching the devil and the man. And so he saw, you know, sickness as being from the devil. And of course, you would think that, you know, this man who died a hundred years ago, that we wouldn't even be discussing him, except for the fact in the uh, 80s and 90s, there were a number of so-called faith healers who are part of the world word faith movement who uh, got their theology from Wigglesworth and they heralded him as a great man, as a great person. And he was really not. Lester Sumrall was probably uh, the most famous guy to always uh, raise him up. And he too was a false prophet. He predicted that um, by the year 2000, that Jerusalem would be the richest city on earth, that the common market would rule Europe, that uh, there would be a nuclear war involving Russia. Um, he prophesied the greatest revival uh, would take place um, by the end of the 20th century in the history of man. Well, none of those things happened. In, in fact, um, he, he argued that at the, the last days there'd be a great revival. Jesus said just the opposite. Um, he said at the end of time, lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. There won't be a great revival in the end. Just the opposite will happen. So again, this guy was a false prophet and many Pentecostals still look to his writings today. Um, and you shouldn't, uh, he, he's just a very confused man and he did great harm. And usually what drives most of these ships is money just like uh, those who are engaged today in the whole process of, of faith healing. I mean, who wants to be sick? Nobody wants to be sick. So if you have someone who can promise you that they can potentially bring about healing in your life, then that's going to fill auditoriums and stadiums and also line the park pockets many times of evil men because they misrepresent the word of God. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Sammy from Garden City, Georgia, would like to know whether using food stamps is unbiblical. Well, every once in a while, uh, that question will, will come to us. And uh, there was a passage in Second Thessalonians 3.10 where Paul says, For when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, neither shall he eat. I remember years ago, a fellow uh, came and knocked on the church's door. Actually, we were on another piece of property. We hadn't built our first building, but we had an office on this uh, piece of property. And he said, you know, um, I need some money. I need to earn some money. And um, he didn't say I need to earn some money. I need some money. I uh, I don't have any gas money. And um, would you, you know, give me a hundred dollars? And I said, well, you know, this kid was 19 years old, bleach blonde hair, well tanned. Uh, as it turns out, he was kind of a beach bum who used to hang out in Hunting Island. And he thought maybe he could get a free handout. I said, well, you look pretty strong. I said, why aren't you working? Well, you know, it's hard to find a job. I said, well, look, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity. I'll give you a job. And so I gave him this large black garbage bag. And I said, see these pine cones are all over the property. And the guy who cuts the grass says it messes up his lawnmower. So they have to be picked up. And you fill this up and I'll give you a food voucher. And because you say you, you, you need some food money as well, gas money and food money, and I'll give you a food voucher for $25 and you can go down to the local grocery store here and we have an arrangement with them where you can't buy cigarettes or alcohol with it, but you can get $25 worth of food. 
no, no, I, I, I can't do that. I said, well, um, you know, the apostle Paul said, if a man does not work, neither shall he eat. And of course, uh, he didn't like that. He didn't like that verse of scripture. And so he left and I didn't help him. Uh, let me just say this, that government aid should be your last resort as a Christian. And maybe it could be used in a genuine emergency situation, but it should not be the flow of our testimony. The flow of our testimony is what Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you as well. So God's uh, plan for his people is to seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things, all what things? all our needs, not our wants, but our needs. And he just spoke in the immediate context in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, of our food and our clothing, that they would be met. And so our first response is to turn to God, not to the government. And we need to develop the habit of turning to God first in prayer, not first to petitioning the government or some program in which uh, they can meet our needs. Uh, sometimes, you know, hard times fall on a Christian, and we respect that. Uh, we uh, have a food pantry at our church, and people who, I know there's some people who are scoundrels, and, you know, the, we try to win them to Jesus, but a lot of the people who come, come with real need, and we uh, service a lot of families every month, and, you know, when the economy crashed in 2007, you know, I met one man who had come to our church and he said, Pastor, you know, a year ago I was making $130,000 a year. And he said, it's like the faucet was turned off. And he said, now I'm really struggling to put food on the table. And he said, thank you for the food pantry. Now he's doing well today. But my, my point is, is that there might be a need where the local assembly could meet that need. Uh, the Bible says to do good to all men, but especially to those who are the household of faith. In other words, our first priority should be to our fellow Christian to help our fellow Christian out. And again, there are people who are on food stamps because uh, they manage their resources poorly. Uh, many of God's people are ignorant about what the Bible says about money. They don't know what the Bible says about stewardship, about giving, about saving, about debt. And many of the problems they have brought upon themselves because they have not managed God's money his way. One of the things that I require if I'm going to marry a couple, I just married a couple on Saturday and they thanked me again for the six months of premarital counseling and how much it meant to them, especially the course on finances. If someone says to me, I'd like to you know, marry me next month, pastor, or in two months, I say, I'm sorry, we can't do that. We have a policy at Community Bible Church that you go through six one-hour counseling appointments and you have about 20 hours of homework that you have to complete. And the, the clock starts ticking after the first appointment. And so we won't marry anyone within a six-month period. So if someone came to me today and said, assuming I could marry them, all things being equal, like, for instance, I wouldn't marry a believer to an unbeliever, but assuming I could marry them, then it would be a minimum of six months before we could lock in on a date. Uh, and again, we're doing that to help them. But, you know, I meet these young couples who many times have not grown up in Christian homes. And again, what you tend to do is what the world is doing. There was a time in America when the American economy reflected more of a biblical 
uh, way of life because we were so Christianized as a nation. I reminded that couple as they stood at that marriage altar on Saturday that in 1915, only one in a hundred marriages ever ended in a divorce. Now, approximately 50 out of a hundred first marriages, about 78% of second marriages end in divorce. Well, why is that? What changed so radically? Well, we were much more Christianized. In 1915, you could not graduate from a high school in America without having read the New Testament. It was a required course, the New Testament as literature. Uh, that would be considered you know, obscene today by most politicians. So my point is, is that some people are on food stamps. They're dependent on government programs because they have created a financial mess in their lives because they're not doing their finances God's way. And of course, there are people who work the church and we have to be discerning. We had some people who said, well, we heard that, you know, your church does good, especially to those who are the household of the faith. And I'm a believer and I'm a member of your church. And, and so we had to come to the point where we, generally speaking, did not give people financial aid until they were a member for at least a year uh, because we had people joining the church just to get financial help. But what I think is interesting, uh, two passages come to my mind apart from 2 Thessalonians 3.10 is Deuteronomy 24.19. And there we read, when you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless the work of your hands. And then there's one other text. Let me read it from the book of Leviticus chapter 23. When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord, your God. So what I find interesting is that when there was a need amongst the poor in Israel, um, God said, make him work for it. You don't just, uh, you know, harvest all the way to the end of the field and say, oh, well, the corners, you know, the amount that would come from the corners are for the alien and the orphan. And we'll give these to these folks. No, uh, he made them work for it. Uh, don't, don't reap right to the corner. Uh, leave the corners for the alien and for the orphan and for the widow. And I suppose you could see how generous a man's heart was by how big his edges were and how big his corners were. Uh, that would have said a lot about a man who owned a piece of property. And of course, you see this even lived out in Ruth's day where she wants to go down and she wants to glean as a widow. Uh, she wants to glean the edges of the field. So unfortunately, we live in a day where there's a kind of give me mentality when our government would be much wiser to make people work. Uh, even on a welfare program, uh, there could be a lot of situations where maybe a person could work even a number of hours. And I think we, we rob people of their dignity when we take away that opportunity for them to uh, use the means that God has given. Now, there's a difference between a person who won't work, which is what Paul is speaking of in Second Thessalonians, and a man who can't work. So there's a big difference between those two, and we need to be discerning to measure that difference. But if a man won't work, Paul says, you, you don't feed him. Um, tell him to get out and get a job. Maybe you'll help provide the job so he can earn, but just don't give it to him. So that's a great question. And, uh, you know, a lot of Christians have lost their testimony 
by being on food stamps. And that's unfortunate. And many times when you speak to these Christians, well, do you ever tithe? No, I've never tithed before. Um, or they might say, well, I tithe and say, well, uh, explain that to me. Well, I, I gave $5 last week. Okay, great. Does that mean you made $50 last week? No, I, I made uh, $250. Well, tithe would have been $25. Sometimes we use the term very loosely and we call any amount that we give to the local church a tithe. No, a tithe in both Hebrew and Greek is a financial term. It means a tenth. We give a tenth to the work of the Lord. That's what a tithe is. And God promises that when we tithe to the local church, that he opens the windows of heaven and he meets those needs. That's part of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, you can't say, well, I tithe and I don't know, wonder, I wonder why I'm in such financial need when you are spending money you haven't earned. You, you can't obey this one principle over here and disobey another principle over here. If God gives you $40,000 to live on this year and you spend 60000 because you put $20,000 on credit cards or you bought new furniture or new boat or some want that you had uh, and you spent more money than God gave you, then you have violated a biblical principle. And you may find yourself needing food stamps. And many times that's what's happened. Anyway, these are great questions. Let's go to the next one, Rick. Indeed, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, And Wayne from Port Royal says the following, God told Moses to speak to the rock, but he struck the rock twice, Numbers 2011. As a result, God would not let Moses into, uh, we've got a live caller. We always give preference to live callers. So let's go to them now, and then we'll get back to uh, Wayne's call. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. This is Anthony. Morning, Dr. Brogy. How are you doing? Hey, doing well. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, Question. Uh, You just just listed this nine. You use the terms that sometimes people use different words or terms loosely. Yes. Yeah. uh, I got, uh, it might be a little simple word, simple question, but uh, uh, what do, uh, what do you, would mean when we say glory to God? Okay. And we use that word glory, and I think sometimes we use it loosely. And the second part of another question is on the, on the commercial, I guess it's a commercial or after a program. You speak about uh, uh, a church like Open Pool. You know, what I mean, if you have a building that you could let them use for a low price, all that. But you also say if you want a church that's on the brink brink of extinction, is that just for Pula, or is it for anybody here in the Low Country, or is it just Pula? And I'll just hang up and listen to. It was breaking up in my headset just a little bit. What was the latter part of the uh, question? Okay, in the uh, announcement where we're seeking a church in the Rincon-Pooler area, yeah, we, you right. mentioned, um, and if you've got a church that's uh, maybe on the brink of distinction, of extinction, yeah, 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 let us know. And he was wondering whether you were just looking for that in the Rincon-Pooler area or elsewhere. Well, it's a good question. It's a fair question. If the Wall Street Journal uh, assessment is correct, 50,000 churches in America are expected to close in the next decade. In fact, uh, one of our pastors was just speaking uh, yesterday to a gentleman in Savannah, and he mentioned that a church uh, basically went into extinction, and he they gave their property, like some 17 acres and 
church van and even the monies that were left on the books to this church down there uh, who didn't have a church building. Uh, More and more, that is going to happen if the current trend continues. And so, yeah, so we we would like to plant a church in the Port Wentworth, Rinkin, Pooler area. Why? Because we have people who continually ask us for that. They say, you know, we're, we're really crying out for some basic Bible exposition. And unfortunately, in many churches across America, there is like zero um, biblical input. Someone just asked me to listen to a sermon and say, Pastor Carl, just give me your honest opinion. This was in New England. And so I did. And uh, the sermon was uh, on God's peace. And I said, there was, I said, if this is typical of a Sunday morning, I said, one, it would be difficult to find Christ in this church. And number two, it would be virtually impossible to mature in this church if I was depending on Sunday morning. And this kind of preaching is my only source of biblical input where my shepherd fed me as he's supposed to do the word of God. And it was really, it was really sad. And yet this church had really grown, which is unusual because um, most New England churches are pretty small. Uh, Community Bible Church would be larger than the largest church in New England uh, because um, it's a very cold, hard place. Uh, But what some churches are now doing is they're, you know, going to basically the Perry Noble, uh, Rick Warren type model where, you know, it's very milky, virtually little uh, input in the New Spring, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels model. It's really sad. People can't mature in that kind of a church. They can't really grow up in Christ in that kind of church. They're going to remain baby Christians if they find Christ at all. And I meet a lot of people from those very churches who have come and moved to this area. And, oh, yeah, I was a member of... uh, Bill Hybels Church at Willow Creek. How long were you there? Oh, 10 years. Or I was a member of New Spring, and I asked them the diagnostic questions, and even though these churches baptize them, they don't even know the plan of salvation. I think this is really sad. Someone is going to give a a serious accounting someday for this kind of uh, behavior. But listen, I know some of these churches say, well, we kind of gather them on Sunday morning, and we teach them during the week in small group. Well, that's not God's pattern. That's a violation of what the word of God says, not to mention you end up bringing huge numbers of people into the church who are lost and it ends up uh, leading to uh, the destruction of a local assembly. So many churches are are adapting this and, and a lot of churches, you know, they're just dying. They're dying on the vine. So they, uh, they either go to a, a false model that will produce numbers, but not converts and disciples or they will just continue in their deadness with nothing and they die and the doors are being closed. And so churches are being turned into condos and um, theaters and all kinds of things, even bar rooms. It's, it's really pathetically sad. And, uh, and that's just where it, it stands. So if a church is a 501c3, um, a nonprofit, they can't just, you know, sell their property and say, well, we're going to take the money and go on vacation to Hawaii for three months. No, they have to give it to a like church or a like organization, another organization that would reflect what they are constituted to do. 
Now, they could sell their church if they wanted to a nightclub uh, and then take the money and give it to, you know, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. But that would be terrible stewardship to use a, a building that was bought and dedicated for God's purposes and to give it for evil to, to unfold. So, uh, you know, yeah, when I mentioned that on the radio, I realized there are churches on the edge. And this is not the first one. Another church received a building down there about five years ago. And uh, it's um, if someone's listening to me and you live in the Port Wentworth pool or Rincon area and your church is ready to dissolve and you're looking for a church to take it over, we would consider it uh, because we are looking for a meeting place uh, to start there. And I meet people who, you know, drive from Georgia and they're really frustrated. They say, Pastor, we just want someone to open the Bible and tell us the truth. We want to grow and I've got a slice of time to raise my kids and there's no input that the second half of your question about glory to God, what does that mean? Well, you know, sometimes we use phrases that are biblically true. Certainly all glory should be given to God. We were created for God's glory. Isaiah 42, eight says, I am the Lord, thy God. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. Um, so God does not want us to usurp his glory. But sometimes we use phrases really with no meaning. Uh, we, we use them in vain. Sometimes we say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And they don't really even know what they're thinking and what they're saying and what they're responding to. So, again, I'm not one to judge the heart, but uh, we need to give glory to God. God alone deserves the honor and the praise. And he is the one who redeemed us, not we ourselves. And we should give him all honor. He is the one who's given us the gifts and spiritual gifts and natural talents and acquired skills and the means to serve him. And so ultimately all praise is to be given to him. But neither should we use these phrases in an, a non-thoughtful way, because then it's really almost using the name of the Lord, our God, in vain. All right. Very good. Let's go back to that question from Wayne of Port Royal. He writes, God told Moses to speak to the rock, but he struck the rock twice. Numbers twenty eleven. As a result, God would not let Moses into the promised land. Deuteronomy 34, 4. Now his question is, if Moses or other fathers of the faith were not able to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48 commands us to do that. How are we to do that? Well, the key... Um and of course, you're quoting a portion from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48. Uh, it's been called the Sermon on the Mount for uh, St. Augustine was the first to use that term. Um, and it's kind of become a catch word for Matthew 5, 6 and 7. But the, the key verse in the whole sermon is Matthew 5 and verse 20, where Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. And so the Lord was basically dismantling the teaching of his day through the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Herodians who, you know, had an external form of righteousness without any inward reality. So throughout the sermon in a number of places, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he carried the standard to God's original intent. So someone can say, well, I've never committed adultery, but Jesus said you lust in your heart. Well, I've never committed murder, but you hate your brother. 
And so uh, I, the Lord wanted them to understand the spirit of the law. And so when he says here, you are to be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. The word perfect, teleos, is a Greek word that can mean mature. And many uh, contexts uh, certainly indicate that. And so many times it is rendered that way in a number of uh, interpretive English translations. Or it can mean perfect. And Jesus is just reminding us of a new standard that you can't have external standards where you say, well, you know, uh, I've never committed adultery, but you go home at night and you look at pornography. You, you can't have some external standard and say everything's fine when it's not. So God has called us to absolute holiness as believers. And we need to recognize that. Now, are we going to be perfect in this life? No, but that is our, that is what we're striving for. We're not striving for a pharisaical kind of righteousness that's external only, but an internal and external righteousness, a real genuine holiness. And so Peter echoes this same truth in first Peter one. He said, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in some of your behavior. No, that's not what he says. In all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. It's the same concept expressed. You shall be perfect for I am perfect. You don't say, well, you know, I'm doing okay and I don't do this anymore. And so I guess I've attained a a standard of perfection or holiness where God is pleased. No, we we keep striving. We keep growing. Now, we don't focus on the perfection. We focus on the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. And as we look to him and depend upon him, God gradually, slowly uh, matures us and our character increasingly with every year, every decade that goes by should reflect the character of Christ. But then he will complete it when he comes back at his return for his church. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, we did get a call a minute ago. They dictated their question. They said that uh, she and her daughter had some Mormons come to their house and were able to quote many scriptures and said they were Christians. What are the differences between Christianity and Mormonism? Well, that's a great question. Uh, Mormons clearly are not Christians, uh, not even close to being Christians. Every major doctrine that they teach is contrary to the word of God. Uh, For instance, the doctrine of the Trinity, they deny it. Uh, The doctrine of the deity of Christ. And that's where most cults start. There is a denial of Christ's deity. And wherever there is a denial of Christ's deity, then typically what will follow is a denial of the Trinity and other major doctrines. So, you know, they'll try to bamboozle you into thinking that they believe what you believe, but they do not. Uh, They have redefined terms, just like many liberal theologians in our day use terms, but they mean something entirely different by it. And they don't mean the same thing that we mean by it. So when we speak, for instance, of uh, Jesus being the son of God, well, Mormons will say, well, we believe Jesus is the son of God but they don't believe he's God the Son. And there's a huge difference. Uh, They refer to him as a savior, but not as a complete savior. They believe that works will partially save you. 
So they deny the substitutionary atonement is being sufficient to save us. And they're always adding something on top of what Jesus did as a means for our uh, conversion. Uh, what Jesus did was not enough. And so, um, you know, that, that, that's just heresy. That's wrong. And so they deny the deity of Christ. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ as being sufficient to save us. Uh, they deny the Bible as sola scriptura. When Mormons show up at your door, when push comes to shove, they will tell you, well, we don't believe uh, the Bible to be entirely inspired. We believe there are mistakes in the Bible. And so they will argue that ultimately only the Book of Mormon can be trusted. And so they have a one or two verses that they will often show you to try to confuse you. Oh, over, over here in Matthew's Gospel, it says uh, Judas hung himself. And over here in Acts, it says he, he fell headlong and his guts burst open. Well, there's a contradiction there. Well, there's no contradiction there. One account just fills in the details. Probably the rope broke and, and he popped open there on the rocks, there in the Valley of Hinnon, which is a very rocky place. You could see exactly how it happened. Luke just fills in some details that Matthew doesn't give us. But they say the Bible is corrupt and only the Book of Mormon can be trusted. Look, the Book of Mormon is not reliable and there are many changes in it. And now a number of Mormons are becoming disillusioned over, you know, what their, the reliability of their own scriptures, especially with the introduction of the internet and a number of uh, different um, websites that are available. So they deny the deity of Christ. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny the substitutionary atonement. They deny the virgin birth as the Bible would define the virgin birth. They say that God the Father came down in a human body and had a relationship with Mary, and that's how Jesus came here. And they say that Jesus is Lucifer's brother. Uh, Listen, Jesus is not Lucifer's brother. He was not created. Uh, There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. There was a time when he didn't have a human body. And it didn't happen by the Father taking on our humanity. It happened when the Holy Spirit overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary and combined Christ's eternal deity with a sinless humanity. God became a man. So Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is equal with the Father. They deny the equality of the Son to the Father. Look, the Book of Mormon and the Bible cannot both be true. For instance, when we think of the Book of Mormon, we're talking about a number of books within the books. Um, And so, for instance, in the Book of Alma, which is one of the books in the Book of Mormon, I think it's the seventh chapter. It's either the 12th or the 14th verse. It says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't born in Jerusalem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So look, the Book of Mormon and the Bible both cannot be accurate. Um, Mormons are not Christians. They are not Christians. And if they are honest and you simply ask them this question when they come to the door, do you worship Jesus Christ? If they are honest, and many of them are now dishonest, and they'll lie to you, and they justify their lying as a means to win you, um, at least the Jehovah's Witness will be honest. 
Some Mormon missionaries will, but you ask them this question, do you worship Jesus Christ? And if they are honest, they will say no. Remember, you shall worship the Lord thy God in him only. To worship anyone other than the living God is absolute idolatry. And we are warned against doing that. So then you can say, then you don't worship the same God that I worship. Because in the Bible, they worship Jesus Christ. Jesus receives worship. When they fall at his feet and they worship him, unlike Paul or Peter, he doesn't tear his robes and say, don't worship me, I'm only a man. He receives it. And the revelation, all of heaven is worshiping the Lamb of God who sits on the throne. Probably the best website to answer questions about Mormonism today is called Utah Lighthouse Ministry. And it's uh, utlm.org. U-T, U is an umbrella, T is in Tom, L is in Larry, M is in Mary, utlm.org. I believe that's probably the best. There's some other good ones, but I think this is the best ones. So um, they'll have like frequently asked questions about Mormonism and a number of things. And, and they'll give you what the Book of Mormon says or Covenants and Doctrines or Pearl of Great Price. There are different books. And then they'll give you what the Bible says. And I think you will find that really helpful in being able to defend what a Mormon says and believes and teaches. So I hope you'll find that helpful. Let's uh, let's go to the next question. Maybe we have right. time for one more. Very good. Yes, indeed. Um, at the beginning of the program, you mentioned that Jesus Christ's blood was spilled for all. How do we explain that to Calvinists? Also, this caller heard Bill Bright was a Calvinist. Do you know if he was? I knew Bill Bright personally. I promise you he was not a Calvinist. Uh, Bill Bright believed, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Bill Bright, nonetheless, wanted to work with a wide range of people in the body of Christ. So in the first edition of the Four Spiritual Laws, it said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And during the uh, Here's Life campaign of the 1970s, it was called the I Found It campaign. And they, on billboards all across America, it said, I found it. You can too. And you call this number. And people used it to share the gospel with different folks. Um, well, he wanted to work with a lot of the Presbyterian brothers. And they said, well, God doesn't have a wonderful plan for everyone's life, only for the elect. And so he was willing to amend the booklet to say God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life rather than say has. Um, Well, you know, he did that because he was kind of a pragmatist and wanted to do whatever he could to win souls for Christ, but he was not a Calvinist. And there are different degrees of Calvinism. Some believe that the atonement was limited only uh, to the elect, And I have a message on that. If you call Search the Scriptures and you go to my course on soteriology, I go through all the verses they use that they take out of context to argue for a limited atonement. And I show you the verses that will be of great help to you. We're out of time. It's been great to be here today. Walk with Christ, will you? 